This week on Useful to God, Dr. James Spencer will begin to unwrap what patterns we may adopt to becoming more useful to God. James, from the concept of self-control to imitating Christ, what are some of the daily habits that we can adopt in becoming useful to God? And and does it start with surrender and self-control? I think in part it starts with surrender and self-control. Uh, you know, there there's something about this that we need to differentiate between what we might do just to change any normal habit and what we're doing to really grow in in our relationship with Christ. And so what I would say is that we don't want to approach this in uh, a way that emphasizes our own willpower or our own desire to be changed. And so uh, part of what I would recommend to people is that they start thinking about the areas in their lives where they're doing something that is just obviously hindering them in growing more closely with Christ. So, um, you know, we can all think of, of certain bad activities that we, <laughs> we engage in in any given day um, that might really be hindering our walk with Jesus. Um, you know, things like um, pornography use, for instance, or um, even just, you know, watching uh, sort of television programs that uh, reinforce a worldview that is antithetical to the Christian worldview, listening to music that is uh, conveying messages that really aren't theological in nature or aren't Christian theologically. And, uh, and, you know, we can set those things aside. In addition to those, though, what I would also encourage people to begin really taking a harder look at are, you know, what are some of the more innocuous activities that we might be doing that we don't even understand are impacting us? And we've talked, uh, the Go Dark Shine Bright campaign is happening again in May. And uh, one of the things that, as I've done the research for it, that I found out was that, you know, screen time in the evenings, consistent screen time in the evenings after the sun goes down, um, has been linked to increased uh, incidence of depressive emotions uh, or just depression. And so one of the things we might glean from that is that there are these innocuous activities that we may be doing that actually have a real detrimental impact on how we feel and the the sort of energy we can muster to obey God in any given day. You know, it, it changes our dispositions in such ways that we're not now oriented in the world in a hopeful, joyful, thankful, you know, way. And we need to take a step back and really um, think through what it might look like for us to reorient ourselves by stopping some of those practices and then introducing practices that actually help us to grow in our relationship with Christ. Things we know we should be doing, like reading our Bible and prayer, those are sort of basic things that we could be doing. But I would also just recommend to people that they take steps to do things that would reach out to someone in need, that they would be nice um, to someone, uh, you know, on a, any given day that maybe they normally ignore. Um, you know, these little steps of obedience, uh, I think, will open us up to experiencing God in new ways. And that that's really what I'd like to emphasize is just to say, once we stop doing some of these things that are hindering our discipleship, and, and we can then start doing these little acts of obedience on a day-to-day -day basis and allowing God to show up. 
that's the real uh, idea behind, I think, becoming useful to God and, and implementing these patterns in our lives. Yeah, I kind of look at it as uh, this: these little things that have eroded our our closeness to God. Uh, these things that that we you're right. We don't we don't know that we're we're actually doing something that may be harmful uh, in our walk. And then uh, we've got this uh, this whole thing about um, it, it's a, a erosion just a little bit at a time, and uh, and and it's. Just Distraction too, isn't it? Uh, you you speak a lot to distraction, and uh, those are the things that um, that really do hinder our our usefulness to God, aren't they? I think so. I mean, it's you know, if we think about it, and I, and I've talked about this a little bit before too, but you know, the world is seeking to make us disciples of something. So we're always engaged in discipleship, very similar to what Paul says in Romans, right? You're a, a slave to the one you serve. What I would say is um, in that same sort of trajectory, we are being discipled by the master that we serve. Discipleship is nothing more, um, and I'm probably saying that is a little too generalized. Discipleship in its most basic form, let's say, is becoming accustomed to a particular way of life. It's about having a life that is patterned after something. And so we want to pattern our lives after Jesus. And that's where imitation of Jesus and and sort of following him come in. Um, but we can also become accustomed to living in other ways. There's a passage in, in Jeremiah, I believe it's Jeremiah 10, 13, if I'm, if I'm correct on that, um, that talks about people who have become accustomed to doing evil. And basically, the thrust of the passage is just this. Um, in the same way that a leopard is going to have difficulty changing its spots, or it's impossible for a leopard to change its spots, so those who have become accustomed to doing evil are going to have a very difficult time changing and, and, and not doing evil in any given moment. And so discipleship is about sort of the development of these patterns so that we become accustomed to imitating Christ, accustomed to doing what he would ask us to do, accustomed to doing what is good as defined by Jesus, as defined by God's word. That's that's the, the sort of central idea of discipleship is that we're sitting at the feet of Jesus to learn these patterns that will inform the rest of our lives. So what mom said is uh, is true. If you keep on doing that, you'll get stuck that way. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't help that one. Uh, that's that was out for that. That goes out to my mother. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm looking at a scene from Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 through 25, which I know you're very familiar with, and we'll unpack this a little bit. It's the story of Moses fleeing Egypt. Uh, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that, and... Seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. James, a familiar scene with a backstory. Moses thought he had a secret. 
Now it's time to tell what he did, when he did it, and what to do about it. We see this in the culture all the time. How how does this play out into the concept of restraining ourselves despite legitimate concerns? Well, I, I think this is, um, you know, restraint isn't something that any of us particularly like to exercise. Um, when we see something that's going wrong, I think our gut reaction is that we want to intervene and stop that thing from happening. And so, uh, you know, and there is something to be said for interventions, right? We don't want to just stand by and allow things to, uh, you know, get out of control. And so the way I think about this is, um, you know, in two ways. Number one, we have to start remembering that patience, prayer, reflection on the Bible and theology are activities that we can do in order to address a situation that seems really bad. We don't have to be impetuous. We do not have to respond right now to anything that's going on in the world. Prayer is is not a, you know, a, a passive action. Prayer is the activation of, you know, our relationship with God and an act of trust that he will intervene and that he will help us understand how he would have us intervene. And so it's a real active process and legitimate way of addressing the wrongs in the world. And so sometimes I think we don't take the the step back and recognize that as we pray, we are actually doing something active within a difficult situation. So we need to remember that, 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 you know, some of these basic Christian disciplines aren't pulling us away from the world. They're drawing us into God's world. And that's an important aspect of learning to um, discern when we need to restrain ourselves and when we don't. The other aspect of this is what I would say is I go to sort of Ephesians 6, right? We do not fight against uh, flesh and blood, but against the rulers and principalities. Um, and and there's a, a general sense in which when we try to fix physical problems without also considering the spiritual ramifications or the spiritual backstory that is driving some of these things in our physical world, that we are missing part of that picture. And so here, what Moses is, is doing, it's, it's Moses sort of, in my mind, acting on flesh through flesh. In other words, he's basically picking up and using the tactics of any ancient Near Eastern nation or any ancient Near Eastern person and killing an Egyptian and burying him in the sand is a very violent and sort of physical and militaristic way of bringing about some form of deliverance. And I think this narrative is put here to remind us that, listen, uh, you know, once Moses and once Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, that's not really Moses doing much, right? Moses is now the mouthpiece of God. He is the conduit for God, and he's in service to God. But God is actually doing the delivering. And, and so in this instance that we just read through here, Moses is really thinking in terms of, hey, I can fix this problem in my own power, in my own way but not really considering what happens if Moses is able to start a rebellion and overthrow the Egyptians. What happens next? Can Moses really form a nation that is more just, more peaceful, more aligned with creation? He can't. 
Um, it not in any sort of way that would matter. It requires God's deliverance and it requires then God's law to govern a new nation, to create a new people. And ultimately it requires God's sacrifice to give us all new hearts. And so that's what I mean when I say we, we tend to, um, separate the physical and the spiritual. And so as we consider whether or not we want to restrain ourselves or whether we want to act, we need to have considered that both of those, I think, um, in some very serious ways. Um, we'll, we'll continue the scene here because <laughs> I think, uh, this plays out in what you're, what you're saying. Um, Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. When the girls returned to Reuel, their father, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Rules asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses, Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. So Moses is a fugitive. I have become a foreigner in a foreign land, he says. How is his posture and change of position advantageous to being used for God's purpose? Well, I think, you know, Moses has to learn. If you if you imagine sort of a flip side of the story, right, where Moses is able, it doesn't flee. Maybe he mounts a rebellion and defeats Pharaoh, right? The story continues rather differently. But here, Moses is humbled. You know, he's not only been sort of cowed by the the Egyptian power, right? Like he knows he can't take on uh, the whole nation of Egypt, but he's also been sort of spurned uh, a little bit by some of his uh, some of the people he was trying to help. And, and so that's challenging for Moses. And so as he goes out and away from his people, he really is in a very sort of liminal situation here. He doesn't know, you know, who he can trust. He doesn't have a, any particular family. Um, and, you know, Moses spends his entire life really um, as a as a real foreigner. Right. If you think about, you know, he's he's sort of raised in the Egyptian court. Now he's off in in, you know, the the wilderness and in Midian and and, you know, he he's not with his people. And so I think what's happening here is are two things in the narrative. Number one, um, what we see is that Moses's efforts are not going to work. He's not going to be able to bring about a physical deliverance of Israel. And so, you know, he is he is now sort of out of that picture. He's no longer the heroic deliverer that, that Israel may be looking for. 
Um, but we also see that God is recognizing that his people are in trouble. And so it sets this scene where Moses is basically um, no longer a player in the political scenery, right? He's, he's ousted and God can come back to him in this next cycle and sort of bring him back in and say, no, you are the one I'm going to use. You really just started at the wrong time in the wrong way, but now we're going to make this work together. So if you take how God uses abilities and disabilities in the makeup of a human being, the Bible has some great examples. Moses is one of them. How does God use our weaknesses sometimes even more than our abilities for certain situations? I mean, you see this throughout Scripture, right? I mean, um, one of the most vivid examples, I think, is um, Gideon 300, right? Uh, Gideon is uh, putting together an army and um, God keeps saying, nah, your army's too big. Your army's too big. We got to make this smaller. Well, let's make the, you know, let's make the army smaller, smaller still. And it's because God doesn't want it to appear that the military might of Gideon is giving Israel the victory. And I, I think that in a lot of ways, what God does with our weakness is he then displays his strength through that weakness. We see this in the New Testament as well. Paul talks about it, you know, um, you know, in my weakness, God is, is more glorified. And the general idea is just this. Whenever we act out of our competence, which we should do, right? We have God-given gifts that we should be using uh, to further the kingdom and to build God's church. But oftentimes we can make the mistake that God warns the Israelites about in, in Deuteronomy 8, right? You're going to enter this land. You're going to be living in houses that you didn't build. You're going to be drinking from cisterns that you didn't dig. Um, and you'll sit back and, and be tempted to say, it is by my power and the strength of my hand that I have gotten all this wealth. And so we, we can begin to mistake our competence for um, self-sufficiency. We forget that God has given us these gifts for use in the kingdom. And so we become less than grateful um, and forget that the gifts are not the giver. And so I think when God uses us in our weakness, what we're always reminded of is God's power working through us, even when we're working in our strength. But particularly when he works through our weaknesses, we see him in very particular ways because we know that we could not have accomplished that without his power. You know, we often talk about cycles and progressions and patterns. A cycle sometimes can be an area where we're stuck in a standard operating process or procedure that can be negative. A progression or process can be different. Patterns and healthy habits of living in areas such as surrender and usefulness, fellowship and collaboration, cultivation of ideas in prayer life, stepping out into a neighborhood endeavor, becoming a better steward with all God gives you, and igniting the Holy Spirit at home, through work, and in our communities. How do we make these things in what God can use every day? Yeah, I think, again, I go back to, you know, I, I think my temptation in answering this question is to talk about, you know, some sort of big, great vision, right? We all want to do something big, you know, let's have a, a huge movement of Christians, right? Uh, 
you know, coming together and doing these big, great things. Let's start a program. Let's start a big ministry. Let's, let's, let's really get it going. Um, I think those things, uh, are helpful. They can accomplish some good things, but at the end of the day, um, the way we accomplish things in the world is through patient endurance and consistent obedience. And I think we do that in little things. You know, I, I learned a long time ago, um, you know, I, I've talked about on the show, you know, I, I enjoy working out. Right. <clears throat> um, and so I've been weight training and, um, you know, doing exercise since I was 14 years old and no matter what else, what other component there is, and there are several components to getting in good shape and getting, you know, gaining strength and all that kind of good stuff. The consistency is huge. It's just, you have to be consistent with it. And I would say the other thing is, you know, taking small steps, right? Sometimes people laugh at you in the gym when you're, you know, putting, you know, almost 300 pounds on the barbell and then you throw like little two and a half pound plates on the side of it. You know, it's like, what's that five pounds doing? Well, I guarantee there's a point where if you keep adding five more pounds, you won't be able to lift it. That five pounds is just another little step to push your body that much further and, and to make your body that much stronger. And that, that same sort of principle, I think, applies to the way that we build these patterns and ultimately build big movements within the body of Christ. And to me, an authentic movement is always going to be derived from the basic, everyday, consistent practice of the faith by believers. That's all it takes. We all just have to do the little things and all those little things are going to add up to something big. So one way that uh, people can be useful and become more useful to God is happening very soon. There's still time to sign up for the Go Dark Shine Bright Media Fast. Join us for five days as we take a break from digital media and spend focused, dedicated time with God. Now, that those seems like a small thing to do. Now, as a media professional, as I am, it may be good for me to take a vacation. <laughs> James, I know you are giving up television programs. Yes, I am. Uh, and it's going to be interesting because I, I like to have a little background noise when I'm working. And so a lot of the time I'll just have, you know, something on uh, to listen to as I work. And uh, so I'm going to go without that. I'm going to I'm going to work in silence um, for five days and see how it goes. But I'm looking forward to it. I, I think it's going to be really good. So listeners sign up where and what do they get? So they go to go dark shinebright.org to sign up for the program. When they uh, put their email in, they'll be able to download uh, a guide that has two things, um, a 20 question sort of formatted Q&A really about digital media and how it impacts us. And so some of those uh, little tips and tricks related to, you know, managing digital media, taking control back from technology, all that kind of stuff is in that 20 question guide. They'll also receive um, 10 devotionals um, in that guide that they can use across the 10 days of the program. And so those are new devotionals, um, never been seen before. So they'll be out there uh, for their use. In addition, once they sign up, we're going to be uh, just communicating with them briefly via email, um, usually just sending prompts for the devotional and some prayer out 
And uh, this year, um, they'll probably get a few little videos from me throughout the the time um, just to kind of encourage them and remind them that this is an important thing that they're doing and just to keep it up. Go dark, shine bright. I know I'm not I'm I'm not eating any media on Fridays. <laughs> Sorry, it's my Catholic upbringing. When you sign up for the five day media fast, if you would indicate if you would want to be part of an interactive audio study from the audiobook version of Useful to God, which is forthcoming. I, I got it on my list of things to do. Uh, but uh, it'll be a discussion and study that we are inviting you to be part of on a weekly call. Each week, participants get a digital link with a chapter, a list of questions from the study, and a scheduled invitation from Dr. James Spencer. At the end of the eight-week study, you will get the audiobook, Useful to God. Sign up at UsefulToGodRadio at gmail.com. James, before we go, next week, we will have a guest to expand on this topic. Yeah, um, we're working on getting actually a couple guests. Um, one of them, uh, Lisa Orimoto, who wrote uh, a guide that we're going to be putting out. Um, it's called, it's on Surrender. And so uh, we're working on getting her on the program. And we're also working on getting my uh, first reader from my dissertation, uh, Dr. Richard Averbeck, on the program. Uh, Dr. Averbeck wrote a book on the Old Testament law from the New Testament church, which is just fantastic. And I uh, wanted to have him on to discuss that and uh, various other things. He's a great guy. And so I'll be excited to, uh, to chat with him again. And uh, hopefully that'll be coming up in May sometime. Welcome to Becoming Useful to God with Dr. James Spencer. I'm Richard Beatty. James, what is the fear of the Lord and how does it relate to the love of the Lord? First, there's certainly a difference between love and fear. Love speaks to full devotion. All we are and have is dedicated to the Lord without remainder or regret. Loving God is the greatest commandment. The fear of the Lord may be described as a disposition that allows us to recognize God's presence and to respond first and foremost to him, regardless of the situations or people we encounter. This disposition is forged as we live according to biblical patterns alongside other members of Christ's body. To be useful to God, we must learn to fear and love God. We love by committing to devote all we are and have to the Lord. We fear by learning to respond faithfully to him as members of his church. Find out how you can become more useful to God and download a free guide titled Discipleship Against Fear by visiting UsefulToGod.org. 